listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Today, I welcome back retired special educator and DIR expert and training leader, very active trainer, Jackie Bartell in Rochester, New York. Welcome back, Jackie. Great to be back. And occupational therapist, Amy Lewis in Charleston, South Carolina. She is a co-developer of Powerfully You, a social emotional learning curriculum designed to foster self-regulation and which values individual differences. She has a special interest in self-integration, is currently enrolled in a floor time certificate course with ICDL, and holds many other certifications. We will discuss today together the connection between regulation and compliance. Welcome, Amy, too. Thank you so much for having me. So this uh, stemmed from a conversation I had with Jackie, and we were discussing different things that come up with children when they are dysregulated and different behaviors that come up in general. Dysregulation does not mean that a child is being non-compliant. And what I was saying, bringing to Jackie was a child who is being non-compliant is not necessarily dysregulated. One of the things that I think about when, you know, just in terms of your introduction, we often talk about and the world often talks about a child is not compliant there's there's an expectation that children should be compliant because that's the thing that equals learning and development and growth that then gets termed oh the child is dysregulated and because they're dysregulated they're not compliant and so therefore they're not able to engage in the learning process. And I think that, that, that inside of that, there's a lot of fables, if we will, because a child, a child does not get up in the morning and decide that they're going to be non-compliant, nor does a child decide that they're going to be dysregulated. And one does not equal the other. Okay. And they're both, they're both a, from the layman's perspective, they're both observed behaviors that we observe someone who is not who is not compliant. So therefore, we decide that they're dysregulated, and we're off to the races. So I think what what we want to what I'm thinking that we want to explore is a child that is well regulated can be observed to not necessarily do what the expectation of the other is. And it does not mean that they're not well-regulated. It probably has to do with they're not, it's not clear what the expectation is or other, other components of it. And a child who is dysregulated truly is not being non-compliant and not deciding I am not going to participate because I don't want to. Because that is out of their control in that case when they've gone to what Stuart Shankard calls red brain and um, they're just 
not able to use the prefrontal cortex to think. They're just in fight or flight. Um, Amy, what would you like to add to Jackie's wonderful introduction? Yeah, I totally agree with with what Jackie's saying. And I think that on some level, it comes down to defining the word regulation. And I really like how Jackie talked about, you know, it's what we're observing. When I think about regulation, it really is happening on two levels. So it's happening on what we can observe, but it's actually also happening on a neurophysiological level. And when I think about regulation, I'm thinking about the ability to match our internal state to what's going to serve us the best and what's happening in the environment. I think both of those are important. Um, and I, like, I think of an example of we can be meeting expectations and not be regulated. So I might be at a cocktail party and have someone say something really negative and I might be able to continue standing there having a conversation with the person I'm talking to and um, meet the expectations of that situation socially, but internally my heart might be racing and my thoughts might not be connecting and I'm, you know, my muscles might get tense. So in that situation, I'm meeting the expectations of the situation, but I'm dysregulated. So I think that it's really important to start teasing apart what is regulation. Um, and the way that I have defined regulation is kind of complicated, um, but it says the ability to adapt our neurological arousal, our emotional state, our motor activity, attention, and behavior to meet our own needs and the demands of the situation. And I think that so often we're focused on whether or not someone is meeting the demands of the situation and forget that part of regulation is meeting our own needs and staying connected to our experience. Definitely. And <clears throat> I, I think a lot of that has to do with, and I know you talk about this interoception or interoception, however people pronounce it. Um, and having that that sense of what you're feeling. I did a podcast with Dr. Ira Glavinsky about that and how you can learn about feelings and you can learn about states, but unless, unless you actually experience what it is and feel it, you don't really understand it. Well, and interestingly, our interoceptive experience is very dependent on our regulation and that's built into us for the purposes of survival. So when our arousal, like that neurological activation in our brain and body gets high, our interoceptive awareness decreases. So for me personally, like as a, an adult at the age of 42 years old, um, when I got dysregulated, I would hold my breath and I didn't feel sensations in my body at that point. And it wasn't until I learned to pause and take a breath that I noticed that, oh, when I'm in situations where I'm dysregulated, I feel heat in between my shoulder blades and I feel butterflies in my stomach. And before I learned to stop and take a breath to get a little bit of regulation on board, I couldn't even feel those things. And that's something that's built into us from an evolutionary perspective that 
it doesn't help us to survive, to stop and think about how we're feeling in the moment if we are in a situation of life threat. So that's where like a soldier running across the field who has lost a limb doesn't realize that they have lost a limb or been eviscerated until they get to safety. So a felt sense of safety is actually what facilitates regulation and interoceptive awareness. Yeah, there's so many branches we can go on here. Uh, the first so thing many. I'm thinking is the parents who tell me their kids are wonderful at school and they come home and they lose it. It's because like you said, they're in that zone of just performing, even though they might be dysregulated when they get to that sense of safety. <sighs> I can let it all out. What you just described, Daria, that the child is holding it together. They may not be regulated. Right. And observed behavior is compliant. This child is calm. This child is in the state that they need to be to learn. And in fact, they may not be. There is often a mis unintentional misunderstanding or misreading of the person that is in front of us on what is their state. We can have a child who is sitting in the classroom and look very compliant and be completely checked out and not learning. So I think that, you know, that word non-compliance is really about, are they meeting our expectations or not? It has nothing to do with whether our expectations are appropriate and whether they are actually in a state that facilitates their learning. Um, so, so I just question, I just want to jump in and say, this goes to another complete topic, which I'll refer people to on autistic masking. We're not going to cover masking today, but that's a good example of autistic masking when you're doing what's expected of you, even though it's not your authentic self. What does regulation look like? And I think that my answer would be, it's different for every person. So if I'm looking at the goal of learning, some people learn really well at a calm, focused kind of state of their nervous system. Other people learn really well when they are activated and when they're able to move and when they're um, connected to their body because they're getting movement and body awareness information coming in. That might be their best learning. So I think that, you know, when is someone regulated? Well, it's when they are connected to their own experience and what's happening around them. And that's going to be different for every person. Um, you know, and from a neurological standpoint, we have like this tonic level of arousal that is different for everyone. If the expectation is absorbing information, then that's what I should be looking at as the goal and supporting regulation that facilitates that, not the outward behavior of sitting still in a desk and learning or whatever, uh, you know, other behavior is being expected of a child in a moment. We have to be really careful about our expectations and whether or not that actually equals the goal that we have in mind. For sure. And you're talking about individual differences and how it's so different for everybody. I know um, Jackie's been in meetings with me. I'm walking around, I'm making my lunch, I'm eating. I cannot sit. I, I mean, I can with you guys in my podcasts because I'm interested in it really a lot, but 
in general, in meetings and stuff, I have to be doing something. Otherwise I'll literally start falling asleep. I just cannot focus if I'm in a class or anything, I've got to be multitasking or making food. I, I just can't focus. And I actually got in trouble in graduate school for that because I was falling asleep during one of the, um, what are they called? Not lectures, but whatever the sessions, there's only like eight people and, and I'm dozing off because my body just cannot maintain that arousal. It is really, really important for, for us to think about what are our expectations and are those reasonable expectations for the person who's in front of us and thinking about that whole concept of dysregulation and <laughs> dysregulation is like this this box where we just throw everything into there because I don't know what I'm supposed to do so you're dysregulated okay so we've <clears throat> we've covered a few things what what teachers can see does not necessarily mean that children are learning and absorbing it they they could be um, dysregulated or not learning, but they appear to be compliant. And then the reverse, um, where a child is being quote unquote, non-compliant behaviorally looks to be, uh, is observed to be non-compliant and it's assumed they're dysregulated, but they're actually not dysregulated. Maybe they're using their agency to say, I don't feel like doing this, but they're regulated. You mentioned in their agency, it's very important that we go back and look at kind of the why of we, why do we have these expectations? Um, I have a little girl that I um, had some interactions with that was in a classroom who, when I first started doing um, our, our social emotional learning curriculum with her, the teacher had said, you know, she's one who really needs this. Um, she's very active. She's moving all the time. She can't sit still in her desk, but this was a wonderful teacher who was allowing that to happen. And that had not been true the previous year. The previous year, this child was viewed as very non-compliant. Um, she was usually in trouble and she was um, seen as a, a problem child. But what we learned in the weeks that we spent with her was that she absorbed everything. She was a star pupil in our class and heard everything that we said while she was standing up and bouncing and sometimes turning her head upside down. She was hearing everything that we said. And, and the problem wasn't the child and her quote unquote dysregulation, she wasn't dysregulated. She was supporting her own nervous system. The problem was when the adults had expectations that were about the outward behavior and not about her learning. Because if they had asked themselves, why do I need her to sit in a chair and be still and quiet? Or why do I need her to complete this particular task? The answer probably would have been so that I know she's learning. But if they ask themselves again, you know, why would that show me that she's learning? They probably would realize that it doesn't mean that she's learning. She wasn't learning when she had to sit still and be quiet. And she could eventually have agency and tell everybody, if you want me to learn, I have to be able to move. I mean, that is ultimately agency when you can notice your own regulation and tell someone it's not a match for your expectations of me in this situation. And as long as we are punishing kids 
and, um, you know, not providing them with the support that they need to be regulated, we are hurting their chances of developing that agency. What about the child who is dysregulated? So we have a child who's like, you know, whatever they're doing, that's showing a lot of dysregulation and quote unquote non-compliance to people that are looking at it in that way. And that assumption of non-compliance assumes that the child has control over their behavior. But when they're truly dysregulated, they don't. So I'll go to Amy for this one. Yeah, um, I totally agree with what you're saying that, you know, we have several concepts in there. One, I think what you were talking about is kind of state dependent functioning of our brain. You know, the, the concept that um, you, you mentioned one way of looking at it, Dan Siegel's flip your lid model is another way of looking at how um, when we have dysregulation, we don't have access to our whole brain and our language and logic and reasoning. So I think that, you know, that's, that is definitely one piece of it. But what about the child who is screaming and running out of the room, calling other kids names, maybe throwing objects because they're dysregulated, maybe whatever task is being put on the child is too difficult. They might have motor planning challenges or whatever. um, And they just, they've had it and they get dysregulated and maybe they are truly dysregulated and then it's seen as non-compliance. What would you say to the teachers or people in that case? Yeah, I have a lot of empathy for teachers and the situation that they are in Um, They have been taught to operate a classroom in a certain way or to work with a child in a certain way. And so I think that it's really hard when that's the expectation that's been put on them is that they, um, you know, need for their class to be compliant. So I think that's, that's the first thing that I would say. Um, But I also think that ensuring that people understand that regulation underlies all behavior and that it is our job to support regulation first. And that if we don't do that, we aren't enabling a child to have their highest level of performance. And I think it's hard when we don't have the training to support a child, you know, from an occupational therapy lens, the the situation that you're describing, it could be individual differences of the person. It could be the environment that they are in or it could be that the task expectations aren't a match for that child's skills, even in that moment. I think that's another thing we forget is that our regulation changes from second to second. And so you might have a child that can do something one day or in one moment and not in a different moment. And that's true for all of us. So I think that What I would want um, caregivers and teachers to understand is that backing up to support regulation is always going to be the most effective way to go. Whether you think that the child is choosing to have a behavior or not, if they are dysregulated, expecting them to meet um, your expectations is uh, probably setting them up for failure. 
So it's always worth backing up to regulation. And I, I want to just chime in. <clears throat> My mom was a teacher. Jackie was a teacher. I worked at the Ministry of Education in Ontario. I understand the challenges that, that right. teachers are are put in. And I agree without the support, it's very difficult for them um, with all of the demands put on them. So I, I did not want to come across as a teacher blamer. <laughs> I wanted to oh, come across as a um, empowering educator of things that may or may not be known. I mean, I'm learning every day, every podcast I do, I'm learning. I don't want to uh, um, uh, make it seem like I am some expert on these things. I'm learning everything every day and I fail every day at everything that I talk about. So let's just throw that out there. But um, <clears throat> I think it is important because let's switch it to parents now because I am ICDL's parent advocate. Um, <clears throat> when you have a child who's screaming at you, how your stupid mama <laughs> or whatever right our instinct is okay everybody's different but a lot of times when our buttons are pushed are like you're doing this right now or you're not gonna get to do this tomorrow right that's the natural thing that comes out when people are pushed a lot of times and what does that do dr ira glavinsky talks about this on his facebook page for the glavinsky center um it escalates it escalates you're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. You're gonna do this. Dr. Newfeld talks about it too. Uh, how you're just continually going to throw all these consequences until what? And and you threaten the things that the child cares about, which damages the relationship. And so, <clears throat> um, I'm not sure where we want to take it, but Jackie, what? How best to focus on regulation? Actually, I know what you're going to say. We've got to take into account our own regulation too. But um, what what's the best kind of way that somebody who is strapped like a teacher with lots of students and lots of demands put on them and a very dysregulated child who is being unintentionally non-compliant per se from an outside perspective and or parents who have multiple children and they're trying to get things together and one is just screaming and throwing things hitting the other kid whatever it is <laughs> they're dysregulated Right. And, and I, I, what I think about in that situation, so that the description of the child who's, who's falling apart, what, what we observe is a child who's falling apart, who runs out of the classroom, calling children names and throwing things. I, I don't cue into the, to the, that moment of dysregulation or what I'm observing is dysregulation. Cause I, I would, I would question is this is this a regulation issue or is this a communication issue? Because that child may be saying to me, I can't do what you're asking me in the way that you're asking me. And I have turned the volume up this loud to get you to listen to what I'm saying. And not immediately jumping to, oh, he's dysregulated. But rather, and, and using myself as the conduit to understand and use the tools that I have to help that, if in fact it is dysregulation, to help that child or person come back into regulation. So the child falls apart 
And I would stop and go, first I'd have to stop and go, hmm, Jackie, what just happened and what did I do? And what was my expectation? And was my expectation reasonable in in the face of what happened? And then I would go to the child and say, something's wrong. I'm going to help. And just start with that because that 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 then throws us into this wonderful tool that all of us carry with us of co-regulation. And not and not looking at it as non-compliance, but looking at it as, uh-oh, something's gone awry. Let me see if I can help you either communicate or come into a better space of regulation or a more agreeable space of regulation. But that means I have to keep, I have to think about my own regulation too. And therein is, is the challenge. But I think that that's, that's a really, really important piece for us to consider when we're talking about, about classrooms and those pieces. Where did this start from? You know, because it isn't, it isn't, you know, I don't, the child doesn't turn, a person doesn't turn off regulation on and off based on some, you know, external stimuli, you know, oh, I don't, I don't like what, 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 what the teacher just asked me to do, so I'm going to dysregulate. I, I don't like what the teacher just asked me to do, and I'm going to communicate to her that I don't like it. Because she doesn't listen to me until unless I fall apart, and and not to look at it. You, you see where I'm going, and I right. think that and that might not even be a conscious thing. That's just a learned pattern um, that they have used before. That is how they respond in that situation. They might not consciously think I can't meet this expectation. I mean, often when I'm at home and can't meet the expectations of my family, I don't consciously think I'm going to lose my temper or I'm going to cry because I can't meet this expectation and I need to communicate that to them. It just happens, right? And I I think what you were pointing to in that is really important too, to say people really want to know how to react in that situation. And you just gave some really nice examples of things that we can do to react in a situation where an individual is dysregulated and not able to meet the expectations of the situation. But what was really going to be the most effective in the long term is to be proactive in looking at, you know, you said what was happening in the environment. That's often a reflection that we have to have outside of the time that the person we are with is dysregulated. And I find that so often parents and teachers are, um, you know, living from moment to moment, just getting through it because we're all overworked and overstressed um, when we're in these situations and taking the time to reflect on what's happening and the expectations we have might not be at the top of our list of things that need to get done. Um, you know, we, we just want the kid to do this thing that we have told them they need to do, but often the most effective use of our time is going to be a, to step back and really do a reflection on what's 
what are, what are we chronically seeing happen for this child? Where is the biggest problem in their day? What are our expectations in that situation? What is the environment? How is it supporting them? Their individual differences, you know, I think that it's just, my point is that stepping back and doing that reflection proactively is going to serve us really well to then bring those tools that Jackie mentioned to that moment of dysregulation when it happens. So I have my like cloud bubbles popping off the screen. I got to get my uh, videographer brother to get me some cool things like to do that, these effects. So a couple of plugs, season one, episode three of We Chose Play is all about this developmental approach and looking at a child through a different lens. Dr. Stuart Shanker and Dr. Glavinsky in past podcasts with me have talked about that. What you see is different when you see a child through a different lens. Um, <clears throat> the podcast with Kashina, a holder about co-regulatory, creating opportunities for co-regulatory support. And she really dives into co-regulation. So we don't have time to go into all of that here, but I love what Jackie said. That mimics what Dr. Neufeld uh, advises as well. Things that I'll say is, you know, if if my son says something like, well, you're stupid, mama, I'll go, oh, I wonder why you said that. Hmm, something's going on. You know, I'll just sort of plant those little seeds, not asking them directly, just wondering out loud. And talked about with Eunice Lee in a follow-up podcast with Dr. Shanker, she talked about like, you know, being proactive, noticing those cues um, <clears throat> talked about this in a number of podcasts with people. What can we notice? You know, like Jackie says, what happened right before that happened? What happened? You know, like what, like you said, what's going on in the environment? Um, self-advocates often say, I've, I've heard Kieran Rose, I've done many podcasts with him talk about, uh, what is disabling about the environment? And, and Amy spoke to that. I wanted to ask you, um, Amy, because I know in your, powerfully you program you talk about um lisa feldman barrett's concept of body budget which you guys renamed body battery and i thought that was great because you know my son is always focused on charging the batteries for his little lego power-ups and you know we're we we talk about batteries all the time uh our battery is dying i need to charge my battery i'll say that about sleep and so um, I will refer people to the podcast I did with Dr. Glavinsky about Lisa Feldman Barrett's first book. But do you want to talk about body battery and how do you merge that idea of sort of teaching cognitively to kids like about your body battery and them actually feeling it and that whole interception? Mm. Yeah. Um, so we were super lucky when we decided to write powerfully you i reached out to lisa feldman barrett and said i am an occupational therapist in charleston south carolina and i'm writing a social emotional learning curriculum and what would you have in a curriculum and she invited us to her lab and we were able to work with her in developing powerfully you um we did change it from body budget to body battery because and she approved that change because kids a bit a budget's a little bit harder of a concept. And like you said, kids totally get body battery. Um, and we teach kids that our body battery, you know, we, we kind of feed them the information when we're teaching it to them and they can usually come up with some of what feeds our body battery. So nutritious foods, sleep, 
moving your body regularly. And then what we added to Lisa Feldman Barrett's concept um, was connection because connection also fuels our body battery. Um, I'll, I will differentiate, and this is a little hard to differentiate, but you brought up something that's super important to me. And that is that um, body battery is something that happens over time, over days. So when I'm thinking about, is my body battery charged or not? I'm thinking about things that have happened over the last day or two versus we also teach kids about activation and activation is how do I feel in my body in this moment? And it can shift from moment to moment. I can have a full body battery and be super activated or super deactivated depending on the situation that I'm in. Um, and, and so we teach kids to differentiate those by experiential learning. We um, play games with it. We help them to experience noticing their internal experience of body sensations to learn about their activation. And we spend a, a lot of time on that because people tend to like the concept of body battery, but body battery isn't what we are necessarily adjusting in the moment. So we really have to think about how am I supporting my body battery over time? My uh, co-author's sister is a kindergarten teacher and she told the parents in her classroom, you know, the only thing I ask of you is that you send your child to school with as full of a body battery as you can. And she can help them to use tools in the moment to shift their activation and to be more regulated, but that's harder to do if our body battery is low. So, you know, that's one of those um, things you want to think about proactively is how can I support this child's body battery, their body budget to have energy available to be regulated in the moment? You know, we all know like when we're sick, it's harder to stay regulated, right? It's harder to have attention. Um, and that's about the body battery and the interaction that we have with regulation. Okay. One of my bubbles is popping up the podcast on communication cues and noticing when my son is starting to get sick, I really hope he doesn't catch what I just had. <clears throat> I'll notice he just starts being crankier. He starts acting out. So just noticing those kinds of things. But also, um, I will say that this is possible. And Dr. Stuart Shanker talks about this with their self-reg program, that it is possible to teach kids these types of things. And I'm sure you have the experience as well. In my son, I can talk about these kinds of things over time. He has gone from maybe just screaming in the minute when he's frustrated, like your stupid mama to mama, I have a bad word for you. <laughs> and then he'll say, I'll say, oh no. I'll say, I feel like calling you stupid. So <laughs> that's a huge step. Instead yeah. of just impulsively doing it, he's pausing and he's saying, I feel like doing this, Jackie. So I think as I I'm going to bring it back to the model, but she's talking about the DIR model, developmental individual differences, relationship based <laughs> model, DIR floor time that we talk about on this podcast. Yep. We have to use our FEDCs too. I mean, we have all of that stuff, but we also have to look at the FEDCs and functional, say, emotional, developmental capacities and, and say, where is this child or this person who's before me 
in terms of their capacity within those functional emotional developmental capacities at this moment and so what you just described about your son he used to just blurt it out but he's making a journey he's on a journey along those developmental capacities and he's starting to be able to think more symbolically so i have a word for you and and that's what a bad word jackie (laughs) a bad word and because you you and, and, and I think in the general sense is what we want to do. We want to experience this with children because you, you talked about we can teach kids this. But we teach them by giving them the opportunity to experience it within the frame of those functional, emotional, developmental capacities. And I can tell you a really a, 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 a little story. I had a child in my classroom who all of a sudden things just kind of went crazy. And he looked dysregulated. I mean, things were, he was throwing things and all kinds of stuff. And it was, it was relatively constant. And our first response was, Oh my God, we can't have this. We have to stop this, blah, 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 blah. And when we stopped and I think Amy, Amy references, we have to understand and look at what's going on. And we have to reflect on ourselves because in the end, the problem was, was was on me because I began to use way too much language with him. So I moved from capacity two, three, right into five, six with him, and he couldn't manage it. And when we really looked at it, every time I started talking, he started throwing things. We had to look at the FEDCs, and he was he dysregulated? Or was he communicating and he had to turn the volume up so loud? Probably a little bit of both. But I think that that's a really, that's another really important key concept to this. You know, we have to look at the individual differences. But what is the child's capacity in those FEDCs? And how are we using ourselves and our communication? Yeah, that's a good plug. For my presentation at the upcoming ICDL conference, International Council on Development and Learning in October, I'm going to be talking about balancing your own functional, emotional, developmental capacities with your child's finding the just right rhythm. And um, I I just, we could go on forever. I want to thank you both so much for being here. Are there any last comments you want to make on this topic of, you know, our children being regulated? We talked about what looks like non-compliance. Uh, may or may not be dysregulation, what looks like dysregulation may or may not be non-compliance um, and all of these different variations, individual differences. Are there any last things that come to mind, Amy? I think for me, it's just this idea that regulation comes first, whether I am looking at it from a DIR lens where you know the the first functional, emotional, developmental capacity is regulation or whether I'm looking at it from an OT perspective, because that's my background, um, that working on regulation is the first thing that I have to do. I can't move to teaching skills or working on higher level capacities if the child is not able to be regulated. So I think that no matter what lens we're coming from, whether it's being a teacher or a parent or an OT or a floor time practitioner, regulation comes first. And, and we have never gotten to a point that 
we are always regulated. We are always moving up and down those developmental capacities and moving back into dysregulation and out of dysregulation. Jackie? And I just, just to piggyback on what, what Amy said, she said that you know, we always we have to focus on, on, on regulation. And when I think about compliance, because that's what the world wants, wants is that if we, if we focus on co-regulation, connection, and um, curiosity, the natural byproduct of that is compliance. And the first thing that we want to do is that co-regulation, which which speaks directly to what Amy just said. Regulation is the most is, is is where we start. So we get compliance as a gift when we do co-regulation, connection, and curiosity. And that is so true. I wish we would have started with that. It you get the child you're looking for when you take care of all of these necessary environment inputs etc um and also just wanting to stress that we talk about this in floor time all the time it's a process and amy pointed out about the body battery we're not talking about you know adjusting things in the moment it's a process we're thinking about how have we been in the last week what are all the things that have been happening um everything's so dynamic every minute every day every week so, so much going on all the time. Just being aware of all of these things hopefully helps us see children through a different lens and curiosity. Co-regulation. Co-regulation. And connection. Connection. But co-regulation, connection. Connection and curiosity. So all of those things uh, will lead to um, much more regulated happy children or children who can communicate when they're not and us understanding that. Thank you both for being here. Thank Thanks. you so much for having me. Great. Always good fun. ICDL has a number of courses and services coming up that might interest you. Coming in September are courses from psychologists, Dr. Robert Nassif on support for fathers and Dr. Karen Levine on playing through fears and phobias in children. Then in November for six weeks, every Friday at lunch, is Choosing Play, Setting Up for Success Across the Lifespan. You can find out more information about all of these courses and ICDL's DIR Floor Time Certificate courses at icdl.com courses. Also, check out the upcoming afternoon and evening dates for parent support meetings that I facilitate at the events tab at affectautism.com. Until next time, here's to Choosing Play and experiencing joy every day.